the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at the latest twists in the RTE saga, with 400 job cuts being sought and 56 million euro in government funding being made available. You'll hear from Laura Slattery in a few moments. In the second half of the show, Kira O'Brien joins me from the Web Summit in Lisbon, where the tech conference is dealing with life after Paddy Cosgrave. But first to RTE, where it's been another busy week for new Director General Kevin Backhurst. A new strategic report has been delivered to the government with a range of changes outlined to put the broadcaster back on a sound financial footing. Separately, the government is prepared to release fresh funding to avoid RTE running out of cash. Laura Slattery has been covering the story and join me in studio to go through the details. Laura Slattery, it's been another busy 24 hours at RTE. Went through a lot of controversy, as we know, during the summer over a pay to Ryan Tuberty and other issues. But in the last 24 hours, they've come up with this strategic vision, strategic plan for RTE going forward. And it involves, in no particular order, around 400 job cuts via redundancies, some more Productions being outsourced effectively, some more programmes being produced down the country, so a form of decentralisation. And they've also suggested that Montrose, the base in Donnybrook that everybody knows very well, that it will either, some of the land will either be sold or they'll find an alternative use which will bring in some uh, revenue. And then today, the government announced that some €56 million Euro in funding in various tranches is going to be made available to RTE because, as we know, there's a, a funding gap there, partly as a result of people not paying their licence fee uh, because of what, what happened in the summer. So what's the latest? There's, there's a lot of ground to cover there, but what's, what's the latest? I know that Kevin Backhorst has been updating staff yeah. uh, recently. What's he been saying to them? Well, I mean, first of all, I think one of the things he needed to do today was apologise for the leaks in the media. Now, mm. it's perhaps no surprise to us that this has leaked. And, it, you know, it didn't leak from RTE from what it appears. And he was trying to keep it dumb until he could talk to staff about it. And there was a bit of upset always when people find out about their place of work in, in another media outlet. But Now, mind you, RTE, come on, let's face yeah. it, RTE makes a living off this kind yeah, of stuff we, off we, leaks. We're all kind of used to that by now, I think. Uh, you know, I know from my own experience, I've read about the Irish Times in other, in other publications. Mm. So it is, I suppose, to be expected. But, um, you know, back felt it was necessary to apologise. He also corrected a couple of things that had been in the leaks. For example, there was a suggestion that independent commissioning would be 50% of their total programme spend, whereas in fact it, what they plan to do is increase their independent commissioning budget by 50%. So that's that's obviously a lot smaller number. That's only about 20 million increase. They what spend percentage about- of the productions will be independently produced at the moment? Um, well, they spend about 40 million on independent production sector commissions. So if you add in their total content budget, including news and current affairs, that's 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 only a, a fraction of that. It's, it's nowhere near half. For and, sure. and there was talk that maybe high profile uh, programmes and productions like The Sunday Game and Fair City could be independently produced, which Yeah, seems I mean, those, those are two very different kettle of fish. You know, the Sunday game is a sort of, you know, I would put that closer almost to the Late Late Show in terms of budget and, and so on. The sort of the simplicity really of, of actually making that an independent production sector 
commission. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to do it. You know, I think certainly like something like the late, late, they'd be really reluctant to say, oh, OK, we won't use all our in-house expertise. We'll just get yeah. some company to do it. The Sunday game. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of neither here nor there. But Fair City, on the other hand, I mean, that's got a huge budget in the mid-teen millions, I, I believe. Uh, haven't got an up-to-date figure, but there would be a huge advantage to um, mm. making that a independent uh, production because whatever company made it would be able to get uh, Section 481 tax relief on it. The whole thing would be a lot more efficient. But it would be in an industrial relations nightmare because RTE has in fact just converted a number of Fair City actors from contractor status to um, employees after a number... Because they had to. Yeah, they had to. There was uh, cases brought to the Workplace Relations Commission. So it really hasn't, you know, gone in that direction of late. And they also, you know, just not too long ago rebuilt the the set at Montrose are having sold the patch of land there, the nearly nine acres to, to Cairn Homes. They had to move the set. So there's a lot of investment gone into that. And, uh, you know, it's, but it, it is a big cost in terms of individual programmes that RTE. So it's one to watch, I think. Yeah. Now, you mentioned headcount. We're told that uh, about 400 roles could go via... Yeah. Redundancy. It strikes me that you would only get those number of job cuts uh, with compulsory redundancies, not voluntary. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, but, um, it's interesting. This actually, it does sound like a very large number. They that's have, out of what about eighteen hundred? Yeah, I mean, um, as of the end of last year, they employed one thousand eight hundred sixty-eight people, and that has actually gone up by another fifty-two people because of the fair city situation I mentioned. So it's probably over nineteen hundred at this point. Yeah, uh, like if they're looking for 400 people to go, they have said that in the next few years, this is, you know, between now and, the, and 2028, mm-hmm. that there's 150 people due to retire or hit 65 for sure. And that, that that's part of that num- total number. So, um, so then you're looking at maybe 250 people. I think this maybe has to be, you know, there is a little bit of context here, which is that RTE had a redundancy programme in 2021 and 184 people applied and only 25 people were released. And, you know... Because the, the, other the others yeah. were obviously also crucial to... Yeah, they I mean, didn't want to suppress those roles, but maybe they'll be looking at that again and thinking, actually, you know, yeah. it's a new world. I feel like, I mean, it's like Groundhog Day because I feel like RT's been talking about redundancies for a long number of years. And every time we think, OK, they're going to cut X number of roles. And yet you look at the annual report within a year or two and there are more people employed at RT than there were yeah. before they were talking about cutting roles. I mean, roles. it is really notable. I mean, I suppose that is part of a function of the media. The media has evolved into all these new digital spaces and you need people who are uh, bring certain expertise in those areas. So that is part of it. But if you look at the number just before the recession in 2008, or just as the recession was kicking off, in fact, 2,351 employees at RTE. So they did used to have a lot more uh, than they do now. Like it has gone down by 20% effectively already. Now, it went up and down over the years. There were several schemes. The lowest figure in recent years was 1,822, which is not that much lower than what it is now. But it, it never really got fully down. Like even when the National Symphony Orchestra transferred to the NCH, you know, there were other factors. There was the issue, uh, it wasn't just Fair City uh, actors, but the issue with contractors uh, needing to be regularised meant that that number stayed up even when people took redundancies that, you know, there was a number of a number of schemes. 
So, yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's very hard to say what's the right number. You know, there's, there's some discussion about how, you know, in Finland, for example, you know, the employee account at the, at the public service broadcaster there would be, would be much higher per, per head of population. So, you know, what's the right number? Should actually they be employing more? But I think there's been a lot of, you know, political dissatisfaction, shall we say, over the years at RTE. And, and there's been sort of regular... Um, uh, sort of suggestions that it, that it's a, a bloated organisation, like that's a, a terrible word, but that's been the message, that's, that's been the vibe. Yeah. yeah, okay. Now, what are staff saying about these job cuts? Not happy, obviously. Yeah, I think they are pretty shocked by, um, by the extent of it, you know, albeit with, with an, a number of, of warnings in recent months. And, um, you know, Kevin Backhurst spoke to staff on, on Tuesday afternoon. And from what I hear, some people at the meeting were conscious that, you know, really it's the mistakes of management, the former management that has brought this situation to a head. Now, it might not be the, the number one factor for why they're in this mess. You could say mm. that's government policy. Um, but um, they would say that actually, like, well, are 20% of management going to go? <laughs> well, that's um, a fair point. Yeah. And, and they have said in their document that they've put out, the strategic vision, it's uh, nearly 30 pages long. One of the things that they'd say they're going to try and do is encourage uh, people <laughs> over earning over 100,000 to to maybe or to, you know to, that, that at least uh, some of the voluntary redundancies will be, be from that group, but I don't know how they do that. I mean that's a whole whole other question. And, and they've also said that um, no new contracts with presenters. Nobody's going to earn more mm. than uh, the director general. But it's very difficult to see. You know <laughs> that there's not a lot of light in this. Like it's it's you know that there's a there was a kind of a, an attempt to say oh we'll be on a much surer footing after this. You know once we get the 56 million between this year and next year we arrive in 2025 and it's you know <laughs> we're on a more stable footing and people who are ambitious at RTE and people who are creative and uh, dedicated to the organisation will be able to thrive but you know it won't just be more cuts here and more cuts there but like, I think you would have to be a little bit of an optimist to sort of say yay like that's what's going to happen you know the person sitting next to me is going to take voluntary redundancy I mean normally what happens in that situation is you inherit their workload rather than the or workload some of disappearing it, yeah. but you don't inherit any of their pay and of course the other question is if you're driving down pay like that particularly for the top presenters let's say you know undoubtedly some of them are probably going to leave or just retire or just you know fade away um, and be replaced by people who are cheaper you have mm-hmm. to imagine, but perhaps not as good. Um, yeah, well, it's a funny thing. I mean, RTE's audience is older, you know, both in radio and television, and, and especially on, on radio, I think um, audiences really uh, value familiarity. And whenever you kind of rock the boat in any way, whenever whenever the uh, the equilibrium is upset, you run the risk of, of losing a chunk of your audience. Somebody tunes out at a particular time slot and then they don't tune back in. Whether that's down to the has relative that talent of the younger people. Yeah, I but mean, has that, I mean, Pat Kenny left, Sean O'Rourke took over, Sean O'Rourke left, Claire Byrne took over. I mean, is there any sense that uh, audience was lost in any of that transition? I mean, uh, probably 
the clearest example of this would be going further back in time, and that was Jerry Ryan at 2FM. I mean, 2FM was a commercial yeah. cash machine. But, it but was, Jerry it, Ryan was a one-off. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the biggest example of that. But, it, I mean, it is something that they would be looking at. I'm sure they were relieved when the recent uh, radio figures didn't seem to show any collapse in uh, listenership on the key sort of time slot, 9am, where they, you know, Ryan Tuberty is vacated. But it's a little bit early days to say that that's, you know, a resound success. I'd be looking at those numbers again in a year's time to see where that's really gone. So one of the things I think people are concerned about is that the digital radio stations that they have said that they're going to close, which is Radio 1 Extra, 2XM, Pulse and RTE Radio for Junior. Yeah, not not the channel, the TV channel, but the the radio channel. Uh, They're all aimed at younger people, like they're actually keeping gold, which is aimed at people <laughs> our age and older. <laughs> um, but okay, but does, does that tell us who, who listens yeah, to RT? I Young people don't, so therefore these digital channels go, the yeah, older people do, so go gets there is, there is something a little bit uneasy about that because it kind of sends out the message that RT, you know, doesn't care about young people. But, I mean, it, it may just be a case of re- reallocating those revenues in a different way. I mean, there's no point investing in services that aren't being consumed to any major degree. You know, they might be brilliant, but maybe it's better to put the money into the RT player, which, you know, I think Kevin Backer has said that they are going to invest more in that. There is going to be a new audio app next year, which Dan Healy, the the head of radio strategy, told me recently would be as good as BBC Sounds. So there you go. And there'll be a news app the year after that, I think, again. So they're trying to increase their digital functionality and, you know, keep their audience, keep keep the relevance that they have with, with, with the population. OK, there's 56 million that they're getting from the government. Where's it going to go? And does it come with any terms and conditions? Um, well, I think the uh, Taoiseach has said that, you know, they're going to be looking at or to, to, to publish all these various reports that are in the works on, on the uh, corporate governance side of things. So it's, it's conditional on that to start with. The, the money, it's not all about cuts in, in a sense that there is investment, as I said, in, in the digital service, but also in the Cork base. They have said there's going to be some decentralisation there, that they will move more services or more programme making there, but the facilities there aren't really up to scratch. So that involves a little bit of investment. The 40 jobs that we think will go um, sooner rather than later, that's actually being funded by the proceeds of the 2017 land sale. So, yeah, it's a bit of a a mixture. There's no real huge service being cut. You know, it's not like uh, 2019 when D Forbes said we're going to shut down Lyric FM's uh, studios in Limerick, you know, she wasn't shutting down Lyric FM totally, but it was a pretty major retreat from their national footprint and it didn't fly with politicians and it ended up just, you know, nothing happened as a result of that. So I think there is a little bit of disappointment that some of these smaller services, shall we say, are being picked on. I mean, I don't think anyone's really going to weep for RTE 1 plus 1 or RTE 2 plus 1 because no no jobs are associated with that. And Kevin Backers did say that the people who, the small number of people who 
are employed at these digital radio stations will be uh, redeployed. It's not like they're being targeted for redundancy. So um, there's a, there is a mix of, of investment there. But at the same time, there has to be 10 million in cutbacks next year alone. And that's going to come from not investing in certain things that, that they were planning to do. Uh, what about the charge for the RTE player? Uh, for people who aren't licensed fee payers, if you don't have a licence, you should have to pay for the RTE oh, player. Yeah you're, you're, yeah, you're preaching to the converted there. Look, in the UK, I mean, I, and I know they're not perfect. <laughs> no system is perfect. But it, we're, we're now seven years since you required a login for the iPlayer. And people who didn't register for the iPlayer were cut out of it, basically. And once you registered, you were in the licence fee loop. It was very simple what they did, like they made you eligible almost overnight. And for some reason, the government here can't seem to make any kind of change to how the licence fee is charged. And one of the key suggestions over the years, that one of the, the key pleas from almost everybody in the sector is that it shouldn't be tied to uh, traditional television sets. You know, many homes don't have one, yeah. you know, because it's actually a very popular thing to watch, say, in Ireland, football international or rugby international or yeah, Six Nations. you miss an interview the late yeah, day or something. Yeah. You only want to watch part yeah, of it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. just watch it on the RT player. I mean, people and they have sorted out some of the technical issues they I mean, had with it, haven't it, they? It's not as bad as it mm. used to be, for sure. I mean, I mean, and actually, it depends on where you live as well and what way you're accessing it. I never really have any huge problems. Yes, there's some annoying advertising, but mm. that's that's part of the price, you know, that we're paying as a small country. We can't afford to just to have a publicly funded broadcaster. In in my view, I don't think. Think the government's going to say, let's not have any advertising at RTE because you know that's that's 150 million they'd be saying no to, and seeing as they've already you know 60 million plus that's expected to be drained away from license fee sales between this year and next year. I don't think they're in a position to sort of say to turn down uh, any other funding stream at the moment. So, yeah, look, it's it's going to be a, a fraught time, I would say. I mean. There's obviously a lot of people who aren't happy at RTE for, you know, a vast array of reasons. Um, some of them are very historical. Um, Do you foresee any industrial action by staff? I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it out. And the, the other side of it, I think, is, you know, there will be some cuts to, to content. So will, will, you know, the audience notice that too? You know, is there is this a kind of a vicious circle of, you know, morale is, is sort of, circling the toilet bowl at, at RTE but but also the public isn't necessarily too enamoured with them at the moment so you know is this going to yeah. actually is there no programme that's going to jump out with them where they say oh I know why I pay my licence fee I mean Honestly, I think people who say that probably always pay their license fee. But yeah, it's it's it, there's some people who just won't tune into this at all and just just won't pay ever again. And that's not for Kevin Backhurst to sort out. That's that's sure. for the government. When financial issues come up at RT, one of the things that's thrown at them is that the fact that they're sitting on a prime site in Montrose, and of course they are, um, and that they should simply sell it, move to a cheaper uh, location outside the M50 or somewhere like that, um, and cash in on Montrose and use the money to restructure themselves and finance some magnificent programming and all of that. But Kevin Backhurst has been quite clear, hasn't he, that Montrose is not the is not going to is not going to be the goose that lays the golden egg uh, financially for RT. No, I mean, I think there was some suggestion on one of the Oireachtas committees that it could be worth 400 million, 500 million, what, the land that they still own there. But they've had a valuation done and it's only worth 100 million, they say. Why is that? Well, there's two reasons. And um, one of them is that the commercial 
property market has really uh, suffered in the last number of years, especially, you know, the sort of the office market. Um, you know, if you could imagine offices being built there, it's maybe not necessarily 100% the, the, the prime residential area either. I know there is residential site being built next door, but that's one of the reasons. The other reasons is that since 2017, there's been five buildings on the campus given protected status. So they're listed buildings. So that make and there's the mast as well. So that makes it a, a, a complete nightmare, really. And that really lowers the uh, price tag on the land sale. So I think they are, they might look, you know, they might look at selling another portion of it. I suppose there's two options there. There's the land at the sort of front where the sort of, there's a building called Stage 7, if I recall. I've, it's been a while since I've been in that particular unit, but that's not listed. So that could be, I don't, I don't know if they could demolish that even. They could rent and lease it out maybe. They've but, exited Radio Centre, haven't they? Yeah, They've but see, that's the other end. I mean, that's the interesting thing. Like back in 2017, that's what I would have assumed and, and, and people I spoke to would have said that's next for the chop because it's right next to the land that they sold to Cairn Homes. Mm. It is listed now, as I said, so that complicates matters. Um, Radio it, Centre is listed. Yeah, it's one of the listed buildings, you know. And they vacated the building. Well, no, they, they still operate some, some functions from it. You know, some of the main... Uh, Radio 1 shows, for example, are, are done in the new upgraded studio in the television building. But there's still a lot of stuff in the radio centre. And in fact, the RTE Concert Orchestra, which is still a part of RTE, does some rehearsals there. And it's it's still used. Um, and it's probably a little bit worse for wear and in need of investment, in fact. So it's a little tricky. I, I don't think they've made any decisions on what portion of land that they might look to sell. That like That's another, another bit of work that they have to do. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if that's, that's the strategy. It may well be a case of we wait until commercial property market recovers a little bit and then we we take another fresh look at, at what we might get for okay. for another section of the land because it is a big space. Sure. So RT produced the report. The government has released some uh, funding or agreed to release some funding. So what next? Where Where does this all go next? Well, there's a consultation process with staff. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what that's going to produce or it's going to meaningf- meaningfully change anything. And I assume at a certain point then they will open up a scheme. Uh, the suggestion is, as I mentioned, that they will look t- to get rid of 40 people sooner rather than later. So uh, there's no indication of that being, as I said, focused in any particular area or, or direction. So... The, the 16 million, they should be getting the 16 million from the government in interim funding by the end of the year and then 40 million next year. So they're not going to run out of cash. So it's really just kind of repairing more of the, the damage that, that was done, really. But it's it's an uphill task. Uh, it's it's a, like it was uh, being director general of RTE, I think, is a difficult job anyway, but it always seems to be some crisis that <laughs> emerges in between somebody applying for the job or getting the job and then actually taking it up. And is, there's is, no better is, example than this year. In your view, is Kevin Backhurst the man to sort all this out? Probably, yeah. I think he has a very strong um, sense of public service media. That's his background, unlike um, that of his predecessor, for example. And he has experience, you know, he's been through all this with cutbacks at the BBC, for example. He, he's worked for a regulator as well. He's sort of been on the other side of it. He worked for Ofcom in the UK. I think he is, you know, staff find him sincere, even if they don't always like what he's telling them. He, they appreciate that He's being as upfront as he can. He tends to, 
he tends to sort of agree or disagree with people, you know, quite openly. Like there's no politics really, I think, really in, in how he talks to people. It's it's quite straight and I think, think people can, can see that. So the other question then is what's his relationship like with uh, Catherine Martin and... Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue and, and everybody else, Michal Martin and and, uh, and Sinn Féin. So uh, that's that's something I'm I'm not sure about. He's with uh, stood quite a lot of the you know the brickbats that have been thrown his way by the Public Accounts Committee and and the Oireachtas Media Committee. So he is quite a resilient character, I think. So yeah. Okay, we'll see where it goes. Laura Slattery, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be joined on the line by Kiro O'Brien, who's attending the Web Summit in Lisbon. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, the latest edition of the Web Summit began in Lisbon this week, without the presence of its co-founder and former chief executive Paddy Cosgrave. Kira O'Brien is there for the Irish Times and she joins me on the line. Kira O'Brien, welcome from Web Summit in Lisbon. You arrived there last night and you went along to the opening night, which traditionally would have been dominated by Paddy Cosgrave, the co-founder of Web Summit, walking on stage and saying something usually a bit left field or a bit controversial. He had some, certainly had some controversial remarks to make about Leo Varadkar a couple of years ago, I seem to recall. But this year, all changed. Paddy's gone as chief executive. He's also stepped down from the board. We know because of some comments he made on social media and Catherine Marr is the new CEO. What was her message to the audience at Web Summit? Well, the overall feeling was one of there's new management um, and Web Summit is going to be getting back to what it does best. And that is bringing tech companies, entrepreneurs together uh, with investors. Um, and she did address it, to be fair. I mean, she took a head on. She decided, you know, let's get this out of the way to start with. And what she was saying was, you know, that Web Summit should be the space for hard conversations. That's its goal, not to be the subject of them. Uh, and that was in direct reference to obviously what has gone on. Um, now, what she did say, you know, she, she always said that Paddy had been always been outspoken, both on stage, online, but that she also wanted to make sure that everybody knew that, she believed it was important that everyone has the right to express their views on what's happening in the world. And that is true, whether those views are wise and well considered or disposable and disappear in the doom scroll. But what she also said was having the right to expression and considering the weight of your words are two different things. So first of all, what she said was the, the right to ideas and expression, like she was reaffirming those rights. Um, and that Web Summit was a place where you should come to be challenged and prepared to challenge. And there were important conversations that we shouldn't shy away from them. And then likewise, Web Summit wouldn't shy away from hosting them. Now, obviously, putting that in the, the context of what's gone on in the last uh, the last couple of weeks, you know, she, she was basically saying, look, everybody's the right to say, have the right to their own opinions. But, you know, this is what's happened. And we want to now get back to where we were, which was bringing these investors, startups, entrepreneurs, all these companies together under one roof. Now, this year, obviously, because of what's happened, they are a few people down. And while the conference itself is quite busy, I mean, as you're walking through all the uh, all, all the different stands, you can see like there's a lot of people there. There were more than 70,000 people there, but there are some notable 
kind of absences and it's been well disguised but you know there are the kind of the house stands you I, I assume that's where you know some of the sponsors and the the partners and the exhibitors yeah. who would have been there have pulled out did she mention Paddy Cosgrave by name she did yes she well she did say that she note obviously she's been to the Web Summit before. Um, everybody had seen her on stage in 2019. She did mention Paddy by name. She did address his comments. She did address the fact that you know this is nothing new. Like his controversial comments on different topics are nothing new to anybody who has been following him um, online for a while. I suppose I you know when we were looking around the room, you were wondering how many people knew exactly how controversial his comments had been because obviously there would be some things that would land I suppose more with an Irish audience you know as you mentioned the the, the Leo Varadkar stuff his comments uh, regarding media his comments regarding business people in Ireland there are some stuff that is not going to travel kind of beyond Irish borders so I'm wondering how many people would have been aware quite how controversial he'd been. Yeah. Now, um, I, I wonder what the mood was like uh, at the summit for this opening evening event, because I, I guess people were always, there was always, I've never been to Web Summit, but this is what I hear. There was always a sense of anticipation when Paddy would walk out on stage. What would he say? Um, what would the theme be? Was there a buzz around Web Summit last night when Catherine Marr stepped out? There was a bit of one, and you know, she did get a, a, a kind of positive feedback when she made the statements about the right to self-expression. Uh, there was a big cheer for that. I think, though, you know, that, that unknown element that Paddy had, you know, what's he going to say? Who's he going to, to to kind of take on this time? That's missing, and I, maybe that's just a, an Irish thing, or for the people who would have been following that quite closely, maybe, you know, we're, we're a bit too close to see it. But, like, there was a decent buzz there um i think though the fact that they had some of the the significant speakers and people who would have been present on the opening night kind of drop out you know the there was um there was some high energy people on stage who were trying to keep it going but after catherine spoke and and left the stage then they had the mayor of lisbon on stage and you know and he was quite positive talking about you know what they wanted to make lisbon they had they, they had talked about the unicorn factory before and now they want to basically you know, move that on to innovation and follow on innovation. And then, so people started to filter out a little bit at that point because the night summit starts and they want to go and meet people. Um, and then they had the economy minister, Port Portugal's economy minister was on stage talking about, you know, kind of renewable energy and that kind of, you know, obviously more people started to leave. So by the time they actually did the big button push and the, the confetti blast and the, the, the fireworks that you would have seen, you know, the, the centre stage was significantly emptier than when Catherine had stepped on stage. Yeah. Uh, most people would have stuck around to see her speak, but after that they started to filter out. So it was a bit, kind of get a bit dead towards the end. Is there any sign of Paddy Cosgrave at Web Summit or around the fringe of it? Not that I've seen, though we are all on Paddy Watch. Um, <laughs> I don't think he, well, I haven't seen him here. If he is here, he's keeping a low profile. Right. Is this conference without Paddy just another boring tech conference? Do you know, actually, when I was walking through Web Summit today, I was thinking this could be, for me, I've been to lots of these tech conferences, and for me, this could be Mobile World Congress. It could be any of them, you know, because Web Summit, you know, it, it's all about the startups. And yes, the startups are still there, but I was looking around at, at some of the big boots, and it was just 
very much like any other tech conference that I've been to. And, you know, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, for the company, because it means it's grown to a point where, you know, it is getting in these big people. It's not just about kind of giving out free tickets to startups anymore. There are people coming in. Now, Catherine obviously has a very tough task ahead of her in persuading some of those big sponsors and some of the big partners who would have pulled out because of Paddy's comments to come back next year. Um, and there's a lot of buzz as well about, I've been asked by quite a few people, uh, if I'm going to Slush, which is a rival tech conference. Um, so that should be an interesting one to see now how that plays out. Will Slush kind of pick up where Web Summit left off as the kind of the plucky upstart conference um, and, and grow to, I suppose, Web Summit size and what happens to Web Summit then? Yeah, now let's um, maybe name check some of these sponsors who pulled out in the wake of comments that Paddy made recently in connection with Israel and, and what's going on in Gaza. And they include Intel, Google, Siemens, IBM, uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, Israel itself pulled yeah, out. Nobody wanted to be, I think it, Intel and Siemens went first and nobody really wants to be the headlines here. But, you know, so some of them were quieter than others. So Siemens, Intel, that was a big one. Then Google went, that was followed by Meta pulling out as speaker, Stripe pulled out. Then Amazon Web Services, IBM was a quiet withdrawal. Intercom isn't here either. Um, you know, so some of these were much more, they were, they were much quieter about their, their lack of involvement this year than other companies would have been. And you know, it's 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 interesting to to see the difference in approach across mm. the board. So, is there a financial hit to Web Summit, the company, from Web Summit, the conference, being down these sponsors? That's not yet known because obviously we'd have to wait to see accounts for the company, and that will be a while coming. Obviously, they're not uh, letting out, letting on any of the the financial side of things. I had heard some mad figures being bandied around, but. We don't really know is the answer because we don't know how many, you know, it, it depends on how many, first of all, how many sponsors come back, how many sponsors had already financially contributed before they decided to withdraw. It doesn't seem to have had any impact, say, from the, the, the Lisbon side of things. You know, the hotels are fairly full. You know, people are here. People are spending money. But, you know, in terms of what happens going forward, whether these sponsors come back, I think that's probably the more crucial question for Web Summit. Because if it's one conference, OK, you'd be able to take the hit, particularly because they've also got the Qatar conference coming up. But if it goes on and continues for the next couple of years, I mean, that might be, unless they find somebody with deep pockets to take their place, that's going to be an issue. All right. And finally, Kira, let's set aside the Paddy stuff uh, this is the first full day of the conference. Has there been any interesting speeches or debates that have taken place, panel discussions, anything grabbed your attention? Well, there's a lot of stuff about AI. Um, you know, that seems to be the overriding kind of theme of conferences everywhere for the last couple of years. Um, in general, though, you know, the, the, the feeling from people I've been talking to is mostly like, you know, it's a lot of the same stuff. Um, obviously, we had ChatGPT or OpenAI and ChatGPT's um, developer day last week, I think it was. And, you know, they, they had this thing of custom GPTs. And obviously that got people fired up again about AI. And there is a lot to kind of unpack. There's still a lot to go, though. You know, there is still a lot out there that, you know, we have yet to see. And 
some of these these talks, they look great when you, you look at them on paper and some of them will land better than others. And some of them don't look like the most interesting thing in the world until you actually get there and, and a real debate will start. But we heard last night on the, the centre stage, Jimmy Wales talking about AI and Twitter. Uh, well, the platform formerly known as Twitter, I suppose, to, to give it its, its real name, X, these days. Uh, and, you know, that they have their new AI. And he was kind of saying, well, you know, it, it's a good thing for, in his point of view, it's a good thing that a lot of these large language models are actually, you know, they're scraping the internet and they're scraping sites like Wikipedia rather than solely relying on something like Twitter because as he, it was a little jab at Elon Musk when he said, you know, that, that it's not exactly known for, you know, it's, I suppose it's, it's, it's trusted truths um, these days. It's not the most trusted platform. You, you, everything that you see on Twitter is not exactly the real world. So if, if AIs are being trained on this, well, you know, we might have a problem further down the line. And he's actually doing his own kind of um, social media network uh, called uh, Trust Cafe, which is designed to counter misinformation and disinformation rather than spread it, as unfortunately so many of these social media platforms these days have kind of got caught in that loop. Okay, Kira O'Brien in Lisbon. Enjoy the rest of the web summit. We look forward to your coverage online and in print with the Irish Times. And thank you for joining Inside Business. Thank you very much. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Laura Slattery and Kira O'Brien for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can sign up for our daily business digest at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on X, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with EY, building a better working world.